So thank you all so much for coming back. It's so good to see you all. This will be part two from last week. Um, so last week we were talking about Nehemiah's chapter one through three. Nehemiah chapter one through three. And just to give you a little bit of a recap, so last week we talked about how in chapter one, before I keep going, you don't have to raise your hand, but I hope that you all went home and read over Nehemiah. I hope, yeah, I saw a hand. All right. I hope you all did that. Go over and, and read it for yourself. Do that. Um, don't always just take whatever the person up here is saying. Go home. Get into it for yourself. Do your own digging. We have so many things that we can get information and um, more answers from nowadays, whether it's on our phone. We have commentaries and concordances and Bible dictionaries and everything else on our phones. Um, so go for that and look up for yourself. But in chapter one, we read where Nehemiah, he is serving as a cupbearer to the King Artaxerxes of Persia. And Nehemiah hears that the city of Jerusalem, a city in Judah, that its walls have been destroyed and the gates have been burnt down. Um, Judah, I was looking a little bit further, refers to the southern part of the land of Israel, and it includes the cities of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Judah existed as an independent kingdom for about 300 years after the country of Israel had broken up into two separate kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom that kept the name Israel and the southern kingdom became known as Judah. So in chapter one, Nehemiah, he weeps over Jerusalem. Who else weeped? over Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. Nehemiah weeps over Jerusalem. He repents on behalf of himself, his family, and the people of Israel. And in chapter two, Nehemiah is able to speak to King Artaxerxes about his concerns. And the king sends Nehemiah back to Judah to act as governor of Jerusalem. In chapter two, we also know that Nehemiah inspects the walls of Jerusalem. In chapter three is the account of the rebuilding of the walls, the gates, and the towers. And we talked about how everyone came together to build those gates and to build the wall. That sometimes they were building a portion of the wall that was right in front of their house. Perhaps they were building a gate that had something to do with them particularly, like the priest with the uh, sheep gate, but they all were working on the wall. So now we're gonna go to Nehemiah chapter four. Nehemiah chapter four, and forgive me if I don't say some of these names correctly. It is a shot in the dark. I, I can't pronounce some of them. But the governor of Samaria becomes very angry concerning the rebuilding of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. He flew into a rage and he began to mock the Jews, trying to scare them and discourage them. 
Now, why would he not want them to rebuild their walls? Walls were protection. Walls were boundaries. Walls were meant to keep out what needed to be kept out. Walls were there to set up limits. And he obviously did not like this. So in chapter 4, verse 6, it says that the walls were completed to half its height around the entire city. For it says the people had a mind to work or that they worked with enthusiasm. I don't know about you, but if you're still in the workplace, there's not many people who have a mind to work anymore. It's very sad. Um, Or at least even work with some enthusiasm or some get up and go would be nice. So in verse seven, eight, and nine, still of chapter four, it says, now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. And all of them conspired together and attack Jerusalem and to create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So these enemies around them, they got upset when they saw that the gaps were beginning to be closed. In verse 10, it says, Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired, they said, and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. So here we have the people are complaining. The enemy is threatening. The enemy is trying to discourage them and come against them. So here Nehemiah is at a place where he has to take care of this and he's got to take care of it right away before it gets too much out of hand. So in verse 13 of the same chapter, Nehemiah placed armed guards to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. I thought that was interesting. He placed them as armed guards to stand guard by families. In verse 14 through 23, it says, Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That's a call. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah made it personal. He started with the family. He stationed the people to stand guard by families. And then he told them to fight for their families. That says a lot right there. Verse 15, 
when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. The enemy had been exposed. The plans of the enemy were known to the children of Judah and the enemy knew that they knew. So it was game on. We can know the tricks and the scheming of the devil and the enemy against us. Whatever it is, it's going to be to destroy, it's going to be to kill, it's going to be to tear down. But we can also let the enemy know that we know. Right? We can let the enemy know that we know, hey, I'm no dummy to this. The Bible's told me what you're up to. The Bible's told me what, you're, what you like to try to do to people. So this is nothing new. You're not gonna take me by surprise. I know. You know that I know. And it's game on. Because in the name of Jesus, I'm gonna stand and fight. That is what Nehemiah was saying to these people as well. In verse 16, it says, but from then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. You know what the mail is? Is that looks like that chain link stuff that they would wear over top of them to be able to protect them from the swords and the spears and so forth. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. Then I explained to the nobles and officials and all the people, the work is very spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. So in verse 20, when you hear the blast of the trumpet rush to wherever it is sounding, then our God will fight for us. Verse 21, we worked early and late from sunrise to sunset and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside of the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help with guard duty, night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me ever took off their clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. Shoo. Do you know how much preaching is in that? There's a lot of preaching in there. There's a lot of good stuff in there that we can take for today. The first seven chapters of Nehemiah were devoted to the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls because Jerusalem was the spiritual and political center of Judah. And it was, remember, we talked about this last week. It was a disgrace to the people of Judah as well as to God for the city of Jerusalem to be sitting in ruins with its walls of defense and protection being torn down. The rebuilding of the wall started with the spiritual leaders 
with the sheep gate and the sheep gate was the gate used to bring the sheep in to the city, to the temple for sacrifices. Chapter three, it tells us that people of all walks of life were active in the rebuilding of the walls and the gates and the towers. It talked about goldsmiths and perfumers, men and women, a father and his daughters, leaders and merchants. In chapter three, verse five, we read of those who didn't work, who didn't support the rebuilding, and they were considered lazy, perhaps arrogant in thinking that they were above such concerns and work. In chapter four, we see the importance of standing guard as a family and fighting for and fighting as family. Not just fighting for your family, but fighting together as a family. Without these walls, Jerusalem could hardly be considered a city at all. And this was important work. And the walls had significant impact on the lives of all those who lived within those walls. Those walls provided protection. They provided fortification. They provided boundaries. When Nehemiah instructed the people to fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes, he took practical measures to ensure that the work would go on, but also provided a way to fight and protect themselves at the same time. He placed guards to watch night and day at all times always on guard, to stand guard. Half of the men worked with the other half standing guard with spears, shields, bows, and chain mail on them. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people. The laborers worked on their work with one hand supporting their load and the other hand holding a weapon. All the builders, all the builders had a sword belted to their side. And the trumpeter stayed with Nehemiah to sound the alarm. I'm repeating a lot of this because we got to get this. We got to get this. In verse 20, the people were instructed that whenever they heard the alarm, everyone was to come to that one place and that God would fight for them. They were reminded that God would fight for them. They even called in the people living outside of the walls to come and stay to help them keep guard day and night In verse 23, we see that they were always ready, always prepared, always on guard. They never took their clothes off or their weapons. You know what that reminds me of? Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. It tells us that we are to put on the whole armor of God, that we might be able to stand against the schemes of our enemy, the devil. 
We are to take on the full armor, the whole armor of God and have it on all the time. We have to stand ready like they stood ready in Nehemiah's time. They were ready all day, all night, always. They never went without being clothed or keeping on their weapons, even if they went to go get water. That was just an example of how they took this so seriously that even in the most practical things, they always were ready and prepared. And we as Christians need to always be ready and prepared. Having on the full armor, the whole armor of God. We are to have on the belt of truth the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, we are to have the peace that comes from the good news, the good news of salvation. We are to be holding up the shield of faith. As a helmet, we are to have on salvation through Jesus Christ. And holding in the other hand the word of God as a sword. We are to be like the people in Nehemiah's day, rebuilding what has been torn down and armed and ready to fight. And who does it say that we are to fight for? Our families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. It was saying back in Nehemiah that you are to fight for and with your family. To fight with your family, you have to have the same strategy. If someone in your family isn't fighting in the same way there or has the same strategy that you have, how is that going to work? There's going to be confusion when the enemy comes, right? Because you're going to have some of your family going this way and you're going to have some of your family going that way and here comes the enemy and everybody's scattered, We need to be fighting together as a family. But in order to fight together as a family, there may be some fighting for your family you have to do first. Get it? To fight together and to all be together on the same page and to have the same strategy, that means you may have to fight for some things in your home and in your families so that you all can get on that same page. I was talking with someone here the other day, actually it was yesterday, and they were talking to me about their son and just talking about some different issues and so forth that that they're going through with him and he's young and I was trying to encourage this parent. And one of the things that I was saying to them You pray over them. 
You be consistent in your choices and your decisions with them. You show them the way. You be consistent and you pray over them. If you want to fight for your family, prayer is one of the best ways that you can start fighting for your family. There are strongholds that come down in the name of Jesus when you pray over family. Because there may be family members that you can't really talk to about certain issues and certain things because it just gets too, it just gets a little ugly. But I'm telling you what, you can pray for them. And they can't stop that. Because you can be praying for them and they never even know that you're praying for them. You can be saying, Holy Spirit, get a hold of them when they have no idea that you're praying for Holy Spirit to get a hold of them. And Holy Spirit can start working in their lives and tugging at their hearts and tugging at their minds. And they may not even quite know where the connection is, but it's Holy Spirit getting a hold of them. Let me encourage you, fight for your family. You pray for them. You plead the blood of Jesus over them. I know of parents that have gone in and have anointed their kids' pillows with oil and prayed over their beds. Believe me, there have been many times I have prayed for my kids and I have said, Holy Spirit, you just get a hold of them. I've shared this before, that little dog that used to come up and nip at the ankles all the time there. I, when I was growing up in my, um, growing up there in airport edition in Kaiser, and that little dog would just come up and just want to grab a hold of you. That's how I think of Holy Spirit. Grab a hold of him, Holy Spirit, and don't let him go. We can do that. 1 Timothy 6, 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Ephesians 6, 12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. The culture of today is tearing down everything that it can touch, everything that it can influence. I don't know how many of you have heard of the expression, we are in a culture war. There is stuff going on and the culture has its tentacles in every part of our lives nowadays. All you gotta do is pick up your phone, scroll through Facebook, scroll through Instagram, Watch a commercial. Sit down and watch, I'm going to say it. Watch a Disney Channel show with your kids. School curriculum. Culture is getting its way into everything. 
and we as Christians are being called to be re, to be rebuilding what has been torn down by culture. That means we will have to be like the laborers who had a weapon in one hand and supporting their load or their supplies in the other hand. We have to be like the builders who had a sword belted to their sides so that their hands could be free to do the building, but they were still prepared. What are our weapons as Christians? Chris, are you actually asking me to go out there and get a sword? I could get you one from one of my kids underneath their beds. They used to collect them. No. But there are ways for us as Christians to be armed and ready to fight in the spiritual. When we go back to Ephesians chapter 6, and we look at the whole armor and the full armor of God. This isn't the first time I've talked about the armor of God. We have to have truth. What is the first thing that we are told? We are to have on the belt of truth. Truth. Now, we may not know it so much because we are fortunate enough to live where we do, be where we are. Maybe we're a little sheltered. Maybe we're a little bit in our bubble. If you don't mind, I had someone say you were talking about how you all are retired, so you don't didn't know about some of these different things that are taking place in the workplace because you're retired and you're not having to deal with some of these things. People, I could shock you. Shock you of what is going on in our world today. And believe you me, God's truth is trying to be torn down and stomped on in such a way. So what does that mean? We have to know the truth. We have to know God's truth. We have to know that if God said, you cannot do this, you cannot do that. And if you will, and if you do, you do not enter into the kingdom of heaven. We gotta know that. Because our culture is saying that everything and anything goes and you still all go to heaven. We have to have truth, God's truth, the truth of God's word. I have said this before, either you believe it or you don't. And if you say you believe it, that means all of it. Not just the part that's comfortable and not just the part that fits your choices and your decision. All of it. Psalms 119, 142 through 144 says, your justice is eternal. Your instructions are perfectly true. 
As pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. Your laws are always right. Help me to understand them so that I may live. We must have God's righteousness. We must have God's righteousness for it tells us that we are to have the body armor of God's righteousness or as we have grown up, the breastplate of righteousness. The body armor of God's righteousness. What does a breastplate do? What does body armor do? It protects. My son, it's so funny. He was... um. And he was preparing to go into the Air Force and um, he was trying to make sure that he was in top condition and, and shape and he was working out, working out, working out. And it was so funny to watch him sometimes, I have to admit. But he had those metal plates that you, it's, it's a bulletproof vest type thing, but it's these metal plates, they're very heavy. And he would take those, put those on him, and then he'd put on a backpack and he'd fill it with weights. And then he'd go out into the, around the yard and he was trying to pull trees, you know, that had fallen down and just whatever he could, trying to see how hard he, run, he could run, how far he could run. He was trying to be as prepared as he could be for whenever he had to take that physical test. And it paid off. He actually was the physical PT leader for his group during basic training. He got selected because he was out doing all the other guys and how many push-ups and setups and running and everything that he could do. But he had prepared himself. I saw him going around our house with sweat pouring off of him with this breastplate thing on him that's very, very heavy. His backpack full of extra weights, trying to do whatever he could because he didn't want to be one of the people that wasn't prepared when it came to the physical part of his basic training. May I ask, what are we doing to be prepared? What are we doing? I hope it's more than just coming to church. I hope it is. I hope it is. Every day, they were standing guard. Every day, they were prepared. Every day, they were carrying their weapons. Every day, they were still rebuilding. Every day, they were still working. Every day. We must have God's righteousness. Righteousness is the state of being righteous. Righteous is acting in accord with moral or divine law, being free from the guilt of sin, being morally right or justifiable. Righteousness delivers from death. The scripture says that righteousness leads to life. And that righteousness exalts a nation. Proverbs 4, 23 through 27 says, keep or guard your heart with all diligence. I talked about this last week. For out of it spring the issues of life. 
put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse, improper, perverted lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. In other words, live a life with morals. Live a life with morals. We're also told in Ephesians that we are to have for shoes the peace that comes from the good news. We need peace, don't we? We need God's peace. Peace that comes from the good news of salvation. Peace isn't just about feeling good about a situation. There is peace in the good news of salvation. Salvation through Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross and then raising again and then our accepting of that sacrifice is true peace. True peace is found in Romans 8, 35. And then again in 38 through 39, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is peace. Salvation brings peace. You can fight when you have the peace that comes through salvation and knowing that no matter what way may come against you, it cannot separate you from the love of God. On my phone, I don't have it with me. On my phone, I get prayer alerts of Christians in other countries that are in need of prayer. And I get those prayer alerts and you, I'm telling you what, every time I'm just, oh, Jesus, help them. Oh, Jesus, help their families. The ones that they're missing because they've been kidnapped or put into prison or they're being tortured or they were killed. And now here's the family trying to make a living without um, a family member because they were killed. All because they are in a place right now that does not allow them to express their Christianity. You better have some peace in your salvation to live in some of these other countries where you could literally be killed for having faith in Jesus Christ. You better have some peace in your salvation to be able to stand that and to keep standing. Whew. This is so heavy on me because guys, I'm, I'm telling you, 
Not only do I believe that we are living in the last days, but there is a spiritual battle that is going on that is so severe right now. And maybe, maybe it's not affecting us directly right now. So maybe right now we just, well, I don't even have to know what she's talking about. What is this spiritual stuff that she's, what, what is this stuff? I don't watch the news, so I don't know. Or I'm just happy on my heels, so I don't know. Guys, there is a spiritual battle that is going on right now. And we as Christians are being called to fight and to rebuild what has been torn down. We must have faith. We must fight having faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have what is called, um, sometimes I've heard it called a hero's hall of fame um, because it's just a whole list of different ones that had such great faith. But we are told that we are to have a shield of faith. And in Hebrews 11, it gives us example after example of those who were able to do great things for God because of their faith. And many of us have read where it goes through Abraham and it goes through Moses and the different ones. But in verse 33 through 34, it says that those who lived by faith subdued kingdoms, subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They became valiant in battle. They turned to flight the armies of their enemies. In verse 38, it says that the world was not worthy of them. Wow. Wow. To have faith in such a way that God could use you in such a way that kingdoms were subdued. that you could turn to flight the armies of the enemy to have that kind of faith that you're actually not considered to be worthy of being on this earth. Wow, that's some faith, isn't it? When we have faith like that, we can fight and rebuild at the same time. We are to put on the helmet of salvation. When I think of a helmet 
of salvation. When I think of a helmet, I think of something protecting, something protecting our minds. And it says we are to have on the helmet the salvation of God. Isaiah 26, 3 says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. We protect our minds when it is stayed on Christ. Everybody likes that, that part of the scripture that says, you will keep him in perfect peace. Everyone likes that. I'll take that, God. Keep me in perfect peace. I will take that. But there's an added part. It says, whose mind is stayed on you. If your mind isn't stayed on God, you're not gonna have peace. You are not gonna have perfect peace if your mind is not stayed on God. And when our mind is stayed on God, it says, because he trusts you. We keep our mind on God because we know we can trust him. Another translation says, put on salvation as your helmet. I think of salvation being our protection. When we are reminded that this world is ultimately not our home and we are living for eternity with Christ, then any battles we may have to fight or face here on earth are worth it. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. We are also to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In any battle that we are in, we must use the word of God as our road map, our direction, our compass, what keeps us focused and on track. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If there is something going on in society and culture that you are not sure about, seek the scriptures. If you're needing to fight a culture war, you better know what the scripture says about it. Because I'm telling you right now, the world is gonna to try to persuade you otherwise. So if you don't know the word of God and if you don't know God's word, then there's gonna be times that they're gonna be saying stuff and you're like, well, that actually sounds, that sounds kind of nice. That does sound kind. That does sound loving. That does sound like the better way. If you don't know the scripture, you'll fall for that. You'll fall for it because they'll paint it up pretty and try to make it look nice and try to use words that make it sound all good. We have to have discernment. I heard it said recently that Christians are called to be the conscience of society. Let me say that again. Christians 
us are called to be the conscience of society. We are the ones that should be directing our society and culture, not the world doing the directing. But we as Christians have set back and allowed culture and allowed stuff of today to get its tentacles into everything because, well, as long as I'm good, that's all that matters. I'm going to heaven, so I'm good. In the same conversation that I was listening to, I also heard it said that a true church is the most dangerous place to be and that no real church plays it safe. I'm gonna say it again. A true church, not a building, not a denomination, a true church. Who's the true church? You and me, us. And the true church is to be the most dangerous place to be. And no real church plays it safe. What does that mean? Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It also says in Romans 12.2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We cannot be ashamed and we cannot conform. So I'm just, I'm just going there. We're recorded, whatever. Um, so some of you may have heard of this movie called The Sound of Freedom. Yeah. Um, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. And now, because it is bringing light onto such a horrible subject on such a grand scale, people are trying to paint it as if it's a conspiracy or it's, it's not for real. We don't really have children caught in sex trafficking. We don't really have that stuff. That's some make-believe stuff. Well, over 20 years ago, I became, Again, uh, working and being in touch with a group. It's an Assemblies of God missionary group that does uh, work concerning sex trafficking and so forth 20 years ago. And 
they're wanting to try to make it sound like with this movie, this is just all some not real thing. And, and uh, this isn't a problem. It was 20 years ago. It was a problem. It was 20 years ago, 30, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was a problem. But heaven forbid we bring light onto it. So they're trying to paint it as this, it's not true, it's not real, all this sort of stuff. And I, so I've listened to a lot of interviews concerning, concerning it. And um, there's a lot of backlash that is happening um, in, in some ways to those that made the film. And I was listening to one of the people who are in the film, I was listening to them talk. And this was something that they said and it stuck with me. If we are not ready to pay the price that will be required of us to take this stand, then we do not understand the price that was paid for us. If we are not ready to pay the price that will be required of us to take this stand, to rebuild what has been torn down, to fight with a weapon in our hand, to fight with the full armor of God on us, to fight with truth, to fight with faith, to fight with righteousness, to fight with peace that comes through salvation, to fight, then we do not understand the price that was paid for us. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he paid the ultimate price. He paid the ultimate price and he did not pay that price so that you and I just get a ticket to heaven. He did not pay that price just so that we could be comfy and cozy. He did not pay that price just so that we could have everything going our way. He did not pay that price just so that we could have him like a genie in a bottle who jumps to every one of our needs and every one of our prayers. When Jesus Christ died upon that cross, he took the sins of the entire world upon him. He paid an ugly, ugly, ugly price with, by the way that he died and the way that he suffered. And he did that not just so that you and I can sit back up on our hill and be comfortable. So that we can stick our head in the sand and say, oh, it doesn't bother me. What I don't know can't hurt me. What's not, what I don't know about, well... Saul's is not touching me and my three. No. 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 He paid that price so that we could have salvation and then we could take salvation to a lost world. And when you take salvation to a lost world, that means there may be some fighting, not fist fighting. I'm talking fighting in the spiritual. 
praying, standing for truth, having faith that is so deep that it subdues kingdoms. I also listened as this person was talking and they said, we won't have to worry about our faith because we don't have enough faith to lose it in the first place. If we are not ready to pay the price that will be required of us to take this stand, then we don't need to worry about our faith because we don't have enough faith to lose in the first place. Wow. Wow. If your toes are being stepped on, let me just tell you, mine have already been steamrolled over in just preparing this message. Because I do, I ask so many times, God, what more can I do? What else can I do? I have just a couple minutes. You know, we as Christians spend a lot of time asking what more can God do for us? God, can you take care of this? God, can you take care of that? God, can you provide for this? Yes, he can. Absolutely, 100%, yes, he can. But sometimes we do more asking of what can he do for me that I neglect to say, God, what more can I do for you? Because let's really get down to it. If God gives us nothing else but salvation itself, is that really enough for you? Is that really enough for me? If I get nothing else from God but salvation, shouldn't that be enough for me? Shouldn't that be enough for you? Think about it. When he gives us salvation, he gives us everything. When he gives us salvation, he gives us an eternal hope. When he gives us salvation, he gives us deliverance from the enemy and an eternity in hell. So if we get nothing else, that should be enough. And it should be from that that we say, I will fight for the souls of others. You have given me so much, God, when you gave me salvation. And that alone gives me every reason to fight for the souls of others. And as Nehemiah said, he said, first, fight for your families, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters. We'll put it in modern terms, fight for your spouses, your husband, your wife. Fight for your homes, 
fight for them. Fight. I have grown children right now. And uh, my one is getting ready to turn 22. Tanner just turned 22 here in July. Wendy's getting ready to turn 22 in August. And Madison, she turned 26 in April. Crazy. I'm not old enough to have children that age. I'm just saying. I don't feel old enough to have children that age. You know, it's interesting to have conversations with your grown children. (laughs) Sometimes I know that they're looking at me thinking, Mom, you are so lost. You're so out of it. You just don't understand. You just don't get it. I know they think that. Sorry, Mom, I thought the same thing to you and Dad. It's just that age. It's that thing we all go through, right? And so there are times that I know that it's better for me to just, okay, I've said everything I could say. If I say any more, it probably won't end very well. So, you know, we kind of like agree to disagree. But old buddy, I can pray, I can pray, I can pray, I can pray. And let me tell you, I do. Let me tell you, I do. I can pray. And so can you for your children. It doesn't matter how grown they are. You can pray for your grandchildren. You can pray for those nieces and nephews. You can. Here's what I want you to get from tonight, if nothing else, as we're finishing up here. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you come from. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care how newly saved you may be. It doesn't matter. You still have something you need to be doing for the kingdom of God. When I'm 90, I hope I'm still fighting. If God blesses me to be on earth that long and everything's still all working... I want to still be fighting for the kingdom of God in whatever way I can. And I can only do that, not because of me, because believe me, guys, I've been at places in my life where I've wanted to just give up spiritually, emotionally, Even physically, I've just been like, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm wore out. I'm discouraged. I don't feel well. I'm tired. I'm too busy. I'm just doing all I can just to go from day to day. Are you kidding me? None of us can do it in ourselves. But through the help of Holy Spirit, every single one of us can do something. Every single one of us.